What is the legacy and the work still to do for one of America's foremost climate champions? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Mary Nichols is not a household name, but she arguably has done more than any other public official to reduce America's carbon pollution. No wonder Joe Biden is considering tapping her to lead the U.S. EPA. She's beat oil companies in court many times and has crafted detailed air pollution rules adopted by China, Canada, and other countries. She first served as chair of California's Air Resources Board, or the Air Board, from 1979 to 1983 in Democratic Governor Jerry Brown's first term. When she returned to the job almost 25 years later under a Republican governor, the board had evolved into a much more powerful and important player in what had become an urgent struggle against climate change. Climate One's Andrew Stelzer starts us off with highlights of the Air Board's rise to prominence. In September of 2006, Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger went against the grain of his party and signed the country's first major law confronting climate change. We signed this bill where we begin a bold new era of environmental protection here in California that will change the course of history. AB 32, where the Global Warming Solutions Act is the country's strongest climate change law and aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. We can do this simultaneously. We can make the economy grow and also protect our environment. The following year, the governor appointed Mary Nichols to head California's Air Resources Board. The agency was given authority to write the rules on an economy-wide transition away from fossil fuels. Before they got very far, the subprime mortgage crisis plunged the country into the Great Recession. The oil industry seized the moment to fight back by putting a measure on the state ballot. Two Texas oil companies have a deceptive scheme to take us backwards. They're spending millions pushing Prop 23, which would kill clean energy standards, keep us addicted to costly, polluting oil, and threaten hundreds of thousands of California jobs. In 2010, voters rejected the ballot initiative, strengthening the Air Board's hand. A few weeks later, when climate talks in Copenhagen failed to produce a global agreement, California's progress was a lonely environmental bright spot. Over the next few years, the board fought off several lawsuits designed to reduce its regulatory power. Then, in 2015, the Dieselgate scandal put the agency on the international stage. What has VW been up to? Essentially, the car company was cheating on the very strict emissions tests by getting cars to give false Reading. Here's Air Board Chair Mary Nichols. Uh, the Air Resources Board and our engineers are the ones who uncovered the fraud and figured out how it actually worked. And we immediately brought in the uh, Federal Environmental Protection Agency and in turn the Department of Justice. Volkswagen reaches a deal to buy back or fix half a million U.S. cars involved in the emissions cheat. The company says the price tag for the crisis is double its original estimate. It sets aside about $18 billion to deal with the cost of the scandal. Former California State Attorney General Kamala Harris. Um, it is the largest settlement ever with an automaker. Um, it is the largest settlement ever um, in the context of the Clean Air Act and, um, and in the context of enforcement of our environmental laws. As part of the settlement, VW created a new $2 billion zero-emission vehicle initiative. The move helped spark EV investment throughout the auto industry. 
California's Air Board was able to help turn a pollution crisis into progress, moving not just California, but the entire country towards a lower carbon future. For Climate One, I'm Andrew Stelzer. I first met Mary Nichols in 2007. Around that time, Governor Schwarzenegger's chief of staff called her, asking for suggestions to replace the chair of the California Air Board, whom he had just fired. So what did she say on that phone call? It was something like, well, I'd consider doing it myself. (laughs) So I pretty much nominated myself. (laughs) And why did you become an environmental lawyer? What was sort of your path, your inspiration? You had chaired the Air Board, you're a lawyer. What was your kind of your inspiration and story to becoming um, the career path that you set on? Well, I was an activist before I was an environmentalist. I mean, I grew up in a lovely place in upstate New York, Ithaca, New York, and had, you know, experiences hiking and camping, et cetera. But really, um, the whole issue of the environment as a political issue didn't exist uh, when I was growing up. And there was no such thing as an environmentalist, really. There was a Sierra Club. They'd been around, but they were not particularly big in my part of the world. Uh, What tipped it was Earth Day in 1970, and then the rise of a whole new generation of, you know, young lawyers and other kinds of organizers and activists uh, who saw the environment as something that was in need of action by the government, or either to stop bad things from happening or to create better conditions for nature, for wildlife, etc. And um, as someone who had gone to law school, inspired by my experiences in the South and the civil rights movement, I realized that that was an issue which was going to be taken over by the people who were on the front lines of the struggle, meaning mostly African-American people and, um, you know, to some extent, people who were working with them side by side in the community, uh, but that uh, as a lawyer, it was not the place where I should be focusing my uh, principal attention and that I should be looking to what else needed to be done. Uh, I graduated from Yale Law School in 1971. I was married at that point. Uh, My husband wanted to move to Southern California to practice law. He had spent the summer out here and loved it. Uh, And I was happy to get away from the East Coast and the winter and into a place of opportunity. So I landed in L.A. without a job and went looking for something in the public interest arena. And I happened to land just at the same time as an organization called the Center for Law and the Public Interest, or CLIPI, was getting started. And uh, they had made environmental law their principal activity, although they did actually get involved in some uh, equal opportunity, equal rights litigation, equal employment uh, work, especially. But But their main focus was the environment. And so I went and applied. At that point, I hadn't taken the California bar. So I was just a graduate of law school who needed to take the California bar. So they hired me as a law clerk. And then um, I succeeded in convincing them that they needed to keep me around because I took on the one topic that everybody agreed was really important, but they didn't know what to do about it. And that was air pollution. 
in 2008, shortly after you took over chair of the airboard, I vividly remember being in a, a glitzy Beverly Hills hotel at a, a summit that Governor Schwarzenegger put on. Uh, Barack Obama had just been uh, elected. He addressed the group by video. I had never seen a standing ovation for a video before. And he said uh, that, you know, people who care about climate change now have a friend in the White House. And there there were cheers. And his future Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, spoke there. So take us back to that moment when, when similar to now, there was some a lot of um, expectations and excitement about climate progress in 2008. Well, yes, and similar to now, we also were coming out of an era when the federal government had been fighting against California and uh, working very actively uh, through EPA and the courts to deny California the right to set uh, emission standards for vehicles uh, for the greenhouse gases that are emitted by vehicles. So lo and behold, we're facing the same issue again. It's a, it's a repeat of that experience where we now have a new administration coming in, this time with an even broader set of commitments and, uh, frankly, I think a much longer list, a bigger bench of people that they are looking at for top positions across the government who get it that climate is uh, a major issue for our time. Uh, another difference, I think, which is significant is that we know that um, this election was propelled in significant part by young voters and that um, climate is one of their top issues. So uh, politically, climate has become relevant in a way that it wasn't before. Right. And coming back to uh, to that California timeline, you know, in, in 2009, the auto industry, another recession, the auto industry was bailed out by federal taxpayers. The federal government took a big stake in, in General Motors and, and Chrysler. What kind of leverage did that give California and the federal government to kind of accelerate and increase the cafe standards for the first time in almost, what, 20 years? So there there had been a couple of decades in which there had been no action on fuel economy standards and uh, a great resistance on the part of uh, the Bush administration to setting an emission standard for greenhouse gases. There was the Supreme Court had to tell uh, the administration that they had to at least consider setting an emission standard for greenhouse gases. So we were starting from a, a pretty uh, low point, but um, this, the fact that the industry had been through the near-death experience, uh, I do want to say that you know not all the companies had to be bailed out, and even General Motors and Chrysler were paying back the loans that they had gotten from the federal government. So it wasn't as though they had their arms twisted behind their back and had to sign something, you know, upon pain of, uh, of death. But it is true that the intense experience that they had been through made them more receptive when they got the call from the White House saying, we want to talk to you about emissions. And um, undoubtedly, at that point, they were looking ahead towards their future and in a at least a more receptive mode to the idea that there could be some kind of shared responsibility between government and the private sector for advancing the cause of, uh, of climate change and of, of fostering independence from petroleum. So it was a, it was definitely a, a pivotal moment.
though, you know, uh, I think taxpayers made money on their General Motors stock. They paid back the loans, uh, as you said, but they have short memories. Uh, as soon as Donald Trump was elected, the auto industry was the first industry to uh, issue a statement saying, we want some relief. We want some regulatory rollback. Right. And uh, how did that work out for them? They, they got perhaps more than what they bargained for. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the first trips that President Trump made after he took office was to meet with auto executives uh, in the Detroit area. And it was with the idea that <clears throat> he was going to work with them, he was going to help them, give them regulatory relief in return for them opening up new plants and creating new jobs in the United States. Uh, that was his objective, and he believed as a matter of principle that the way to get that would be to hand them a bunch of regulatory rollbacks. Uh, they never quite said that that was what would happen, and it didn't happen, uh, but he did, in fact, believe it, and he persisted in granting them more relief than they had actually asked for uh, in that meeting or any time afterwards, because they quickly realized once the news of this meeting uh, got out that they were making more enemies than they were friends among consumer organizations, among uh, many uh, members of Congress uh, and others. It wasn't just that the environmentalists were upset about this. It was a much bigger deal. Uh, that they were seemed to be demanding uh, to completely freeze any kind of um, standards that related to uh, to fuel economy or greenhouse gas emissions, and just said they couldn't do it. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with Mary Nichols, chair of California's Air Board and a contender to lead the U.S. EPA when President Biden takes office. Coming up, more highlights from a 45-year career fighting for a stable climate. It was thrilling because suddenly you realize a president of the United States, a person who is a history maker on many fronts, um, was actually embracing uh, action on climate change. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guest is one of America's top climate champions, Mary Nichols, who's stepping down after 13 years as chair of California's top agency fighting climate change. Let's pick up our discussion about the Trump administration's attempt to water down California's fuel economy rules that often become national standards because of its big car market. First of all, there was a period of time during which supposedly the administration was going to try to negotiate with California to see if we could come up with a compromise between zero and the California uh, regulations. That did not work out. And there's a long twisted history about that. But essentially, uh, the administration was not talking to the industry or labor or consumers or anybody else. They just started from a position which was an ideological position that there should not be any use of these uh, emission standards that might impact on fuel economy. So they, they weren't interested in having a real conversation. Uh, when that became clear and we reverted to um, litigation mode, uh, the companies faced a choice. They could either side with the administration or stay out or they could throw in their lot with California. And um, as I think everybody knows, General Motors and Toyota, who were the big dogs 
in the trade association swung their weight behind joining with the Trump administration. Um, they had arguments uh, that they made, you know, in private as well as in public that basically boiled down to the fact that they felt like they were being pressured by the Trump administration into siding with them. And they felt that they were potentially at risk because uh, the president has other tools at his disposal um, in terms of trade sanctions and uh, rulings on various labor and health issues and so forth, in which he could have made their lives much, much more difficult. And so they wanted to be siding with the federal government. Uh, and they had lawyers advising them that this might be their big opportunity to escape from the uh, heavy hand of California regulations as well. So the, their public argument was that they in, intervened in the litigation because they wanted a seat at the table. But they all, uh, those that, that joined the litigation, took the position that uh, California shouldn't be allowed to set emission standards for greenhouse gases. Uh, over time, some of the companies that did not support that position, this was a vote within the trade organization. And while their voting may not be quite as complex as the uh, electoral college, it's, you know, it's a complicated waiting vote, weighted voting system. Some of the companies that didn't support this idea approached California to see if there was a way that they could uh, work around that. And eventually what happened was uh, that we uh, did negotiate a framework agreement which was a, a compromise between no further improvements and the California-only regulation, which we believed would get to the same overall benefit in terms of reduced uh, greenhouse gases if the companies would uh, apply it on a nationwide basis. And so led by Ford Motor Company, uh, but also with the you know, strong leadership and support from Honda and BMW and Volkswagen, eventually Audi and uh, you know, Volvo, um, we arrived at this uh, voluntary agreement, uh, which is like an enforceable contract with these companies, whereby they agreed to meet a higher standard across their whole national sales fleet and to uh, not attack California's legal jurisdiction here. Uh, and I, I do think there's a common thread here in terms of my involvement, which is that it's about the merits. It's about getting the results and the, and the environmental benefits, but it's also about protecting California's right to set standards because that has been time and time again, the one tool that we, the people as a whole, have had to really force progress on the part of the industry. And that exception, that ability to uh, set higher standards under the Clean Air Act is not enshrined in legislation. It could be challenged. Um, are you going to, does California want to enshrine it in national legislation? And are you concerned that a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court could uh, challenge California's right to set cleaner pollution standards that then become national standards? I don't agree with the basis of your question. I think it's important to recognize that our position is that the original 1970 Clean Air Act, which has been reenacted or, or 
uh, amended but improved over time, uh, does state that California has the right to set more stringent standards for any pollutant, uh, regardless of whether the federal government is regulating that pollutant or not. Uh, the only condition is that we have to get a waiver from EPA and that we have to demonstrate technical feasibility and a need for the stricter standards. And that's what we've done hundreds of times over the years. And it's what we are, are doing again with greenhouse gases. That topic is in litigation. Uh, and of course, uh, we don't know ultimately what will happen. Uh, but uh, President-elect Biden has indicated that he's not going to support the position that the Trump administration took on that. So, in fact, it may never get to uh, the Supreme Court for adjudication because uh, we'll go back to what we have enjoyed in the past, which is a, a relationship of collaboration with the federal government. Right. And that's happened under Republican and, and Democratic presidential administrations. Uh, Trump sued California. California also sued the Trump administration. Uh, what happens to the, all that litigation? How many times did you sue the Trump administration? And do those cases now go away? Well, uh, I believe that uh, Attorney General Becerra has filed, <clears throat> excuse me, 58 cases uh, against uh, the uh, Trump administration's EPA for a whole wide variety of policy changes and regulatory changes, rule rollbacks, et cetera. Uh, and many of those have been disposed of and, and we've won them. We have not lost any of them. Uh, so uh, what remains of the existing portfolio I can't say for each one of those cases, but in general, I believe that the overall volume of work for our lawyers will go down. <laughs> uh, what are some of the, personally speaking, what are some of the sweetest victories and bitterest moments in 13 years battling uh, lots of environmentalists, battling uh, oil companies, battling the federal government? What are some of the, the highs and lows for you personally? Well, you cited the um, at the outset of this conversation um, the event uh, that Arnold hosted at the I think it was the Beverly Hilton Hotel with you know leaders from around the world and uh, many state governors showed up uh, as as well as uh, business leaders and so forth to to talk about uh, climate change and um, that video from uh, President Obama. Uh, which was, I think it was shot. It was actually before he was even in office. It was yeah, right. it was shot in his office with a, a wall of law books in the background, as I recall. Not not terribly high quality uh, production, but it was definitely Obama speaking, and it was thrilling. It was it was thrilling because suddenly you realize a president of the United States, a person who is a history maker on many fronts, um, was actually embracing uh, action on climate change. And it was stunning because it was a realization that what we were talking about wasn't some fringe idea uh, or some, you know, kind of European conspiracy that Arnold was a part of. It was, uh, it was mainstream consensus that action needed to be taken to address climate change. And so it was, that was truly a high point from, from my perspective. Uh, certainly, um, some of my, uh, conversations with, uh, members of the, 
outgoing administration uh, in, in which they were fundamentally disrespectful uh, of California uh, were uh, definitely low points in terms of my career uh, trajectory. But uh, I guess um, it, this may sound uh, uh, overconfident, but I believe that if you're right and you have the forces of right on your side and you can appeal to the public, ultimately um, you will win. And I think that's what's happening. It doesn't mean that we've solved the problem of uh, climate change, but at least we're beginning to amass the necessary forces to do something meaningful and big about it. Mary Nichols is chair of the California Air Resources Board, one of the most powerful climate agencies at the state or federal level of government. Mary has led the board for 13 years under Republican and Democratic governors. During her tenure, she's arguably done more to cut greenhouse gas emissions than any other policy leader in the country. She's retiring from the agency this year. Richard, the listener, writes, what with control of the Senate in Republican hands, can anything be done on climate? Well, first of all, as we um, are having this conversation, um, the control of uh, the Senate is not yet in Republican hands, although Mitch McConnell may believe it's going to be. Uh, there's many uh, forces at work and people who believe that uh, the two seats that are still in contention are going to go to Democrats, which would then uh, change the leadership completely. But the Senate is a you know, it's a it's a pretty uh, slow moving body in general. Um, the House is a lot more of an activist institution as our Constitution has set it up. And they have been passing legislation and resolutions that make it clear that they intend to move on climate. And uh, I believe that they will uh, they will succeed in passing legislation. But I think it's really important to recognize, as the Biden administration is already showing, that um, climate action is not just about one particular law. In fact, there probably are you know, 10 laws that need to be changed or passed in order to get a grip on a problem that is so pervasive as the role of carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions uh, in our economy. However, if you look at um, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, the Department of Interior, the Department of Agriculture, Commerce, they all have a role to play through the missions that they are responsible for in shifting gears in the direction of reducing our impact on climate and making our whole uh, uh, society more resilient uh, in the face of the climate change that's already occurring. So um, this is a it's it's a huge undertaking, but it doesn't. Uh, and certainly putting a stop to the war on uh, any kind of climate change action has got to be the number one thing. The, the scrubbing of any mention of climate change from everything from the uh, National Environmental Policy Act to websites for, uh, from NASA, uh, it's shameful. That is just shameful. And that has got to stop. Um, once we begin to recognize what the, what the science already shows, what the data show us, then I think we have to move in the direction of um, accelerating the recovery of our country from the COVID uh, virus to uh, put money 
and find money to put into uh, building back uh, our infrastructure and providing stimulus in ways that support the transition to clean fuels, uh, clean energy, electrification of the transportation system. And it certainly should have, deserves to have, and I believe ultimately will have bipartisan support. But I don't think you can just look at the makeup right now and say, well, you'll never get anything passed, because I don't, I don't think that's true. Climate was an issue in this presidential election season more than any before. It made to the debate stage. It was thanks to Sunrise Movement and others uh, and also a growing national consensus. Climate change was on the agenda more than before. You know, you probably get this as much as I do. You know, individuals say, what can I do? And there's quite a debate. Some people will say policy is what matters because climate is so big. Policy, policy, policy. We need policy. And other people will say, hey, individual action is important, incremental. I want to do the right thing. What do you, where do you come down on the individual action kind of spectrum in terms of is it significant or is it a distraction that away from the bigger systemic things? Individual action is um, not a distraction. In fact, it's essential. Um, if people are not interested in the topic, even if you have leaders at the very top who are saying, yes, we want to take action, they won't get the support that they need. And I think we've seen uh, certainly in the United States and in other democratic societies that um, change flows from the bottom up, not from the top down. You have to have people who are willing and able to buy the cleaner vehicles, to invest in the new technologies, and to um, move to places that are less dependent on having to drive long distances. You know, you've got to change the economy and the marketplace, and that requires action on the part of the people as they are acting as consumers, as citizens at the local level, and who they elect but also just the choices they make of what to buy and, and how to live. Um, without that, the politicians, even if they may articulate the vision, are not going to have the ability to actually move forward and make policy. It's a, But it's interactive. Again, as we've seen um, most recently with this um, response or lack of response to the COVID uh, crisis in our country, if you don't have national leaders who are willing to set policy and say, wear a mask, uh, then you also uh, don't get cooperation from the people because it's not seen as something that's important. It becomes, it becomes an issue for debate and therefore um, the problem just gets worse. So you re it, it's really not an either or discussion. It has to be both. We're talking about climate change and climate one. My guest is Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, the state's top climate chief. I'd like to go to our lightning round, which is a couple of uh, true or false questions. I know you like this part of this. Um, so uh, Mary Nichols, true or false? Uh, Jerry Brown is so cheap that he usually lets other people pick up the check at dinner. True once, but not anymore. So I'm going to say false. <laughs> uh, true or false? Arnold Schwarzenegger used to fly you up from L.A. to San Francisco on his private jet so you could come in, sit in the audience of front row of audience at Climate One events and you could field the really hard questions I might pose to him. <laughs> once. So true once. <laughs> 
True or false, ride hailing companies increase traffic congestion and the total number of car miles traveled. I don't think that's true. I'm going to say false. Okay. I think one study in San Francisco found that was certainly true. Um, true or false, you really don't like one word answers. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, very true. I mean, again, your San Francisco study, I can't argue with the study, but I'll bet you there's one from someplace else that is not the same. Fair enough. Uh, this is association. What's the first thing that I'm going to mention a noun and you say the first thing that comes to your mind unfiltered from your uh, deep in your brain? Mary Nichols, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say hydrogen cars? Um, easy to drive. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say nuclear power? exists. <laughs> it's out there. We use it. Uh, last one. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say biofuels? Um, mixed environmental benefits, but uh, can be very positive. You're listening to a conversation with Mary Nichols, outgoing chair of California's top agency confronting fossil fuel pollution that is destabilizing our climate. This is Climate One. Coming up, focusing on people who live near refineries and other industrial sources of carbon pollution. Our regulatory programs tend to focus on big regional scale, not on localized impacts. But we've come to realize that there's no alternative, that the state has to get involved. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guest is Mary Nichols, who's stepping down after 13 years under Republican and Democratic governors as chair of California's top climate agency. Despite her outsized role in reducing America's carbon pollution, one of the strongest criticisms of the California Air Board during Nichols' tenure was that it favored wealthy people and didn't fully consider communities of color living near industrial facilities. I think there is a question about environmental justice and whether it has been uh, at the center of the work that we do. And there's definitely been a growing awareness on the part of people at the local, state, and federal level that communities have been left behind, left out, disproportionately impacted by pollution across the board. Um, the, the very term environmental justice at least first came to my awareness around issues of where um, waste facilities were being cited. Uh, there was a whole movement in our country, and it was in California too, to take care of solid waste by burning it to uh, make electricity, but to keep it away from landfills, which communities were uh, definitely trying to get rid of. And um, over time, it's become obvious that there's been less uh, active enforcement, less attention paid to the environmental uh, reality, the amount of pollution that people have had to live with in low-income and communities of color in particular. So that's a reality. The legacy of racism in the way that zoning was done and housing was, was built uh, has left behind uh, whole areas, whole census tracts where um, people are more vulnerable and suffer worse pollution. That's, that is a real fact. 
And our, our programs were by and large not designed to take account of that. And so it's been a struggle when um, people have had to organize and really um, fight to get the attention uh, that they needed, and certain communities like Flint, Michigan, have you know become household words uh, because of the realization that they they were suffering from serious health impacts as a result of the neglect of uh, of environmental uh, amenities that they just people were not getting fair treatment. Um, the air program is no different. It doesn't have a, you know, the the interesting thing, or maybe I think it's an interesting thing, is that our regulatory programs tend to focus on big regional scale, not on localized impacts. Um, and the localized impacts, which are mostly the toxic concentrations, um, tend to be um, dealt with at the local level, not by the state or the federal government. But we've come to realize that there, uh, there's no alternative, that the state has to get involved. And we have, uh, fortunately, we've gotten some very strong legislation in the past few years. And from the very start of the um, market-based programs in the climate arena, uh, the legislature has um, directed a, a set aside of funds that came to the state to address the environmental inequities in some of the most uh, polluted, the most impacted communities in our state. So um, I think California has been a leader, not just in recognizing, but addressing the problems, but um, they certainly are not, uh, they're not solved. Forests are a big part of the, the climate equation. We've seen American West has been on fire this year like never before. Mega fires. It's, each year it seems to be escalating. Um, is that reducing, uh, going backwards? When, when a forest burns, it releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. Is that undoing a lot of California's progress? Address the role of fires and forests in managing carbon and moving to a cleaner yeah. economy. Fire is a necessary tool in restoring the health of our uh, of our forests. Uh, we have to be able to do controlled burning uh, in places where there hasn't been any burning allowed for years in order to reduce the severity, the spread, the intensity of the fires. And anytime you burn anything, there is a release of uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So there's no question that we as the government will be actually participating in putting emissions into the, into the atmosphere. But the uh, flip side of that or the, the reason for that is that if we don't do it, we will not be able to bring back healthy forests that will grow and store more carbon into the future. So uh, within our cap and trade program, we do allow some offsets uh, that come from uh, forest management that is uh, demonstrated to keep trees alive and healthy and absorbing more carbon uh, for 100 years or more into the future. Um, I think it's one of those things we have to keep looking at continually, but I don't believe that it's uh, true that the 
offsets that have been created in California are uh, taking us backward. In fact, the opposite. We have uh, a model in a program that was um, uh, that was developed by the Yurok tribe in Northern California, which owns a lot of land that had very degraded uh, uh, forest resources, and they were able to uh, use the funds that they acquired from uh, offset uh, from the offset market to buy back some of their ancestral land and to invest in improving the overall health of their forests. This is a completely win-win situation, and it's one that it's maybe a small scale, uh, but it's really worth looking at to see how you can achieve both environmental and social benefits if you have uh, a well-run offset program. My guest today on Climate One is Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, the state's top climate agency. Uh, we have a listener, Leslie asked, do you think the Biden-Harris administration will increase incentives for purchasing electric cars? Right now, the federal government incentive, which was a tax break, um, has expired. So it will it will take Congress to bring it back again. Um, direct rebates or tax breaks are are certainly an important tool in getting over the first cost differential between electric and gasoline models. Although we're seeing the, that difference really coming down quickly, and some people have predicted that there will be no difference between electric vehicles and gasoline-powered vehicles within just the next couple of years, which uh, of course, is where we would like to end up. But until that happens, there probably is a need for incentives uh, to help people make the choice for something that is more uh, environmentally beneficial, even though in the long run, they will still save money over having to uh, pay for the gasoline and the servicing of, of a gasoline car because electric cars are much more durable and electricity in most places is still quite a bit cheaper than gasoline. Uh, so that's an important tool, but uh, even more important in decision-making uh, is the question of where you can get the, the fuel so you can actually use the vehicle whenever you want to and wherever you want to. The question of um, what they call range anxiety has been an issue for years in terms of public acceptance or awareness that there really are electric vehicles uh, that will serve their purposes. And I'm happy to say that nowadays, all the newer uh, models of electric vehicles that are coming on the market for the passenger cars and the SUVs and lighter vehicles have uh, battery ranges in the 200 mile plus, uh, which is you know equivalent to the range that you need uh, for gas stations. And um, states and hopefully soon the federal government are getting much more involved in helping to um, make sure that we have a network of chargers that is available to the public so that uh, people can really enjoy the benefits of, of electric vehicles. The, the auto companies are doing a good job of building attractive ZEV, zero emission vehicles for all kinds of consumers. And now they need to match that with the fuel availability in places that are where people really need to fuel up. 
Well, as we began here, we talked about uh, Dieselgate and VW getting caught uh, cheating on their emissions, and California uh, uh, really played a key role in, in exposing that that cheating. One of the penalties consequences uh, was VW building out a charging network across the country. How significant was that scandal in terms of changing not only VW but the industry itself? The um, penalties that Volkswagen paid for the cheating uh, that they did on their diesel vehicles mostly went to funds that were allocated to overcoming the uh, impacts of all the extra nitrogen oxide emissions that people were forced to breathe as a result of the cheating that went on. Cars that were sold and driven that should not have been allowed to emit at those at those rates. So um, that money has been directly invested in most cases in turning over old school buses and getting newer buses or uh, cleaning up public fleets. But um, a portion of it went to um, an electric vehicle fund because one of the things that the company did as they were marketing these so-called clean diesel vehicles was to uh, try to hold back the market for electric vehicles by saying, oh, you don't need to do that. That's way uh, too expensive and unnecessary. You can just buy these very efficient, very clean diesel vehicles, and it will be at least as good for the environment, which of course wasn't true. So as part of their penalty, they had to put aside some funds for, um, for electric vehicle um, support. And in California, that led to the creation of a more, we had more funding to put into uh, public charging than any amount that the state had ever paid up until that point and any other grant programs that we had ever had. So it was a big deal. It is a big deal. But maybe more significant is the fact that once Volkswagen decided they were going to have to do this, they went all in. Um, they not only announced that they were changing their product plans to be all electric in the near future, and you know we know that they're using this as a springboard to change their image and to um, increase their market share worldwide because the demand for zero emission vehicles is a worldwide uh, demand. But here in California, we have seen, and now across the country, we have seen that Electrify America, which was the company that they spun off, has been um, putting in stations and helping to build awareness and uh, make it possible for our country to shift over to zero carbon transportation. As we wrap up, we began talking about AB 32, California's landmark climate law, which uh, had the goal, required goal of reducing emissions to 1990 levels by 2020. California, I believe, met that even a little early. But the outlook for the goals going ahead the next 10 years are less rosy. There's some, been some recent projections that California is going to have a really hard time meeting its goals of the next decade. So could you address that? Uh, so there's some concern that a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked and the next 10 years may be harder than the last 10 years in terms of driving deeper decarbonization. You know, um, having started my career working on air pollution back in the 1970s, I have heard this argument every time the standards got tighter or stricter 
that uh, all the low-hanging fruit is gone. Everything that was affordable has been done. The next uh, slice is going to be way more expensive and way too difficult. Uh, and every time that argument has come up, we have continued to move forward in the direction of our clean air goals set based on health needs. And we have achieved them because technology rises to meet the challenge. It is a, a fact of life, which um, I think some people have a hard time accepting that if you set strong standards and you create the conditions in which people can make money by developing and marketing the technologies that will help you meet those standards, you can do it. You keep on moving forward towards the direction of cleaner air, and we will keep on doing the same thing uh, as we not only clean up the air, but reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. It's not that it's easy. It, is, it, it isn't that there's something there just waiting to be done that's free and gosh, why hasn't just already been done? But if you have a choice in buying a new uh, urban bus or a choice in um, where your electricity is coming from and it arrives at, at, your, at your home or your workplace when you need it and is affordable, um, you don't really care uh, what power plant actually generated those electrons. And this is the beauty of our system is that we have been able time and time again to find and use and reward uh, those who have come along with cleaner, better technologies for creating electricity, creating uh, cleaner fuels. Uh, I, I don't want to, you know, go too much into the ancient history, but when I first started working on air pollution, the power plants in the Los Angeles basin burned fuel oil. It was 3% sulfur fuel oil. It was, by today's standards, completely unacceptable. And we fought with the utilities for years and made the switch from uh, fuel oil to natural gas. And now, decades later, we're moving away from natural gas and in the direction of renewables. Um, each time there's been some resistance, it's not always uh, been a straight line, you know, quick, easy change. And it did require policy uh, to make it happen. But once the policy was there and people accepted that it was needed, uh, we got the results that we needed. Mary Nichols is outgoing chair of the California Air Board, one of the most powerful climate agencies at the state or federal level. She's a leading contender to run the US EPA after Joe Biden is inaugurated. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or telling a friend. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>